Oh. Uh, I hate to say it, but the Studio 3 ain't quite the, the stage of Carnegie Hall. But the, it has its panache. It has its, uh, you know, its little charm. But the, hang in there. Hang in there. Turn up the game and listen to this. Uh, tonight, at this very minute... Out in the wilds of Arkansas, <laughs> hiding in the weeds, in a tattered pair of GI underwear, with an old rusty can opener, his dog tag still hanging, is Ernie. He's out there tonight. God bless the lost Ernies of the world. Yes. The lost sinners of the world. The people who mainline peanut butter at two in the morning. The maize who strip. And the people who collect rotten teeth. Let's give Ernie a big hand. Let's hear it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's hear it. There's 3,000 people there. <laughs> All right. Wait a minute. All right. What do you want me to do most? The bear missed the train. Watch it. Okay. Cut the light. Let's hear the bear miss the train and sing it out. Like that. That was the conclusion of uh, of the show that we did last uh, Saturday night. Uh, after five, six months of intensive preparation, uh, it was. I have to say this personally, and I'm, I'm going for those of you who were there. You probably realize it. Uh, for those of you who weren't there, you probably wish you were. But there were three thousand people there that night, as you can hear that roaring crowd, and they came. And this is what surprised me. They came from as far away as Oklahoma. Uh, they bought tickets by mail through the uh, Carnegie Hall box office. They came from all over the country, uh, places like Lexington, Kentucky, and places like uh, out-of-the-way places like uh, Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> so if you think this was a crowd of New York City radio fans, forget it. You, you just don't, uh, you know. And, and what a fantastic evening. Uh, everything was uh, it just you know it was just one of those nights that was electric as far as I was concerned. And now I've done a lot of performing in my life. I performed. I, I if I had a dollar for just every show I did, I could buy myself a nice boat and hang around Bermuda, just with that. But uh, I I I can't remember a night when uh, everything was. I felt right. The show was right. The audience was right. The hall was right. It was like the Mets, <laughs> you know. Uh, it really was, Joe. And and uh, and I want to thank all the people who came. And I and I uh, that's 
you know, they expect me to talk about it a little bit tonight, since I'm sure that most of you have heard about it. And you know, just as is the case with every show that you do that is a successful show, immediately afterwards, out of the woodwork come 5,000 people who begin to berate you, uh, call up the, you know, they call up in the writing, how come they didn't know about it, is what they always say. How come I didn't know? Well, uh, we had a we had a pretty good advertising campaign. There were posters out and everything, and if you didn't learn about it, that's the way it is. But uh, there will be others. We're going to do other Carnegie Hall shows. We're, we're already booked for next year. And uh, there's a little more that I want to talk about, though, in, in connection with the show. That uh, part of my technique as a performer is to look like there is no technique. I, I, I feel that anybody who is a performer... Uh, an actor, for example, shouldn't look like he's acting. Shouldn't be out there, you know, obviously trying to remember the lines, <laughs> uh, and obviously trying to to uh, make uh, poses and play the bit. Uh, to me, that's not a good act. That's called ham acting. Uh, that's called emoting. It's not the same as acting. And uh, to me, uh, as a comic performer and as a stage performer. Uh, I, I, I don't like people to be ever aware that there's any machinery going on. In other words, uh, uh, that it's all been rehearsed and, and worked out, well, it, which, which it was. As a matter of fact, you don't walk out on Carnegie Hall without a show. Uh, this is a fact, and you don't just walk out. Well, however, the greatest compliment that you can get paid is when people later on come up and say, gee, it was fantastic. I don't know how you can, you know, just come out and uh, talk like that and do these things on stage without, uh, you know, just walk out and do it. Well, that I never be- disabuse people that idea, but this, it was a very well-rehearsed show, and all the music cues and the, the, the lights were very, very subtly done this time. And I, and I might say that this is the beauty of working in a hall like Carnegie Hall. For one thing, you have really professional light people this is the Carnegie Hall staff who've been uh, doing shows and lighting shows for uh, as long as uh, sometimes 10, 15, 20 years, some of these men. And they really know how to light. And, and all the lighting, now I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I want you to listen carefully. All the lighting, many of the, many of the bits that were done in the show, including visual bits, uh, the stuff that was done in the dark during the show, we did a lot of things during the dark. We, we cut out all the lights and used lights and so on up on the ceilings and so on. These were the work of a very creative person I've never talked much about, and that's Lee Brown. Lee created the show. I performed it. And, uh, yes, that's right. It's a big difference. And, and uh, she, she, uh, she produced the show. And when you think in terms of producing, most people think, well, what does a producer do? Does he go out and does he... Does he just hire a hall and pay the actor? No way. Uh, a really good producer, Lee is really a director producer. Yes. Uh, so she created the set. Uh, we got all kinds of comments from people about the beauty and the, the, the symmetry and the, the, the curious ethereal quality of the set that we used, which was beautiful set, really lovely set. This was created on total by Lee, who... I uh, spent uh, weeks prior to the show uh, running around uh, theatrical prop houses in town, getting the right color. For for example, the, the platforms that were used on the stage that were various uh, levels, the colors of the platforms were very carefully uh, contrived by Lee, and she went out and, uh, and spent a lot of time and effort getting exactly the right shade of red, for example. 
the right color, the right, the right black velour. Uh, she reupholstered, incidentally, the chair that was used in the middle of the set. She, she personally uh, did the uh, whole big thing with the uh, with the cushion on the chair so that it would not, so it would be part of the overall composition. The lighting of uh, the painting that hung high over the set was uh, was all done by. And in fact, while we performed, now I'm going to tell you other things. For those of you who were there, you may not have been aware. You shouldn't have been aware of them as it, as it was going on. But as each story progressed that I told, the lighting subtly changed to produce an extra dimension, another mood with the story. So when I told the story, for example of uh, May, the second grade stripper. The light changed subtly until suddenly, uh, as you watched this, and without even probably knowledge on the part of the viewer, he was in a typical sleazy nightclub. That the light changed, you know, that, that purple and red light that they always have in the places where the go-go chicks work on the topless. Yeah, you know, that, that garish with the white light on the performer. and the, There's always this purple background on the the crummy-looking reds and stuff. Well, that's what was being produced. Then when we did the army sequences uh, aboard an, a troop train, for example, uh, subtly the light changed, and we're in that, that, that miserable yellow light bulb light of an all-night train uh, where you're trying to sleep in the seat, and they've got these dirty yellow light bulbs on the ceiling, you know. <laughs> and all this was beautifully... Uh, uh, coordinated by Lee, including the subtle music and sounds that went behind the scenes. I picked the music and, and worked with the music. I'll have to take that credit. However, it was it was Lee who was up in the light loft directing the whole shebang, like uh, like Arturo Toscanini up there. And the and the, to her eternal credit, I'm sure that most people who just enjoyed the show were not aware of the various subtle mechanics that went into it. And that is really what you're work, working towards. So if in the middle of a bit you throw out a cue and then bam, yellow lights come on. And you throw out a cue and then bam, boom, green lights come on. It would be obvious that this is all uh, so mechanical you'd be aware of the mechanics. But this was so subtly done that I'm sure that most people were not even... In fact, I had a... Uh, a, a this, is, this is how tricky you can get uh, and how subtle it was done that uh, a top agent, theatrical agent in town was in the audience, and I talked to him today about it. And he says, you know, he said, it was fantastic. He said, it was fantastic. He says, he says uh, can you imagine what that show would have been like had you had you uh, had a, a, a set designer and you'd done the light? I says, well, you're out of your mind, man. That's exactly what happened. And then he began to see it. So he says, oh, God. He says, yes, that's true. And it was, it was beautifully done, and I want to congratulate Lee for this publicly for a change. And there was just a great job. And she is, uh, she's, uh, she's experienced in this. This is not something you just walk out and do. And she's done many shows in the past. In fact, some of the first shows I ever did on stage, Lee Lipp and uh, directed, uh, going back through the, uh, the days, uh, oh, uh, the Town Hall show, uh, which was several years back, the Carnegie Hall show. She did all the lighting for the shows at the Fortune Theater, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, this is something else again. And I want to say it was a fantastic night. Uh, uh, and, and, and also, you know, I, I might add another thing. Uh, Carnegie Hall sees all kinds of audiences. 
And they're also very wary because this is a beautiful hall. If you've never been in Carnegie Hall, you owe it to yourself to see it. Oh, I learned a lot of things about Carnegie Hall through working there. One of them, one of, one of the subtle things about Carnegie Hall, which you may not know, that, that, that Carnegie Hall is one of the secret, unheralded, true tourist shrines in New York. And I'm not talking about the shows that it is. I'm talking about the hall itself. In fact, uh, Mr. McDonald, who is the, the uh, stage manager, backstage manager there, was telling me that, that they get people come from all over the world, just want to come in, and there's no show there. It's like in the middle of the afternoon, and they're uh, maybe preparing for a show for that night. And he says that they come in from all over the world to just to look at Carnegie Hall. They've heard about it all their lives. And he says, and I was surprised when he told me who the largest single group of people who come to see Carnegie Hall. Now, who would you guess would be the biggest single group to come in to see Carnegie Hall? Now, that's a good question. Who are they? Uh, what are they? Uh, and I said, well, when I, when I, I figured, you know, it would be new, it would be, it would be people, this is W-O-R, New York. Indeed, indeed. And before we go any further, I have a couple of little goodies here that I've got, uh, here. Let's see, how about, how about a little wine here tonight? Uh, you know, a lot of people here in this area have been, uh, you know, hung on sangria and, uh, Portuguese rosé, which are the more, you know, the more uh, popular wines, but, uh, if you've, if you've gone up a little bit in your taste, you want to try something that's really a true wine. And we'd like to recommend uh, the French wines, of course. And one of the better ones around is Alexis Lachine Beaujolais. Wine isn't your shtick. Uh, if you're if you're a beer type, and when someone asks you if one beer tastes any better than the rest, tell him the answer to that question. The only answer: Valentine. Yeah, it's a good beer brewed by the P. Valentine Brewing Company of Cranston, Rhode Island. Uh, you know, it's it's funny though. The, you shouldn't be either a beer man or a wine man. You should be all men. <laughs> I mean, really, beer in its place, wine in its place, cheese in its place, and women in their place. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. But uh, all all kidding aside, getting back to the to the show because uh, you know you're, you're kind of expected to talk about it afterwards. And I know a lot of people have many questions because uh, they have rules too about uh, coming backstage. And uh, the people who were who were able to get backstage after the show, I answered a few of their questions, and you know as many as I could. But uh, naturally, you can't talk much after a show. I was sweating. I'd been on stage for darn near three hours, and uh, that'll take anything out of your mouth. I'll tell you, maintaining the so-called uh, and it is called this for good reason. Maintaining the what they call the theatrical tension on stage is probably the most difficult thing that a single performer has to face when he is on stage. It's a, it's a subtle thing, and, uh, and uh, that's right. I want to say one other thing, and this is something I would like to, to put on public record, too. And Lee just gave me a note to this effect, and I want to do it. I'd like to publicly thank 
the kids in the audience for one very... Now, this audience was composed of all kinds of people. Don't think I just had a crowd of kids. No way. Uh, they ranged all the way from... Uh, well, just the entire panoply of people. They ranged all the way from uh, 87-year-old uh, elegant teachers of Latin, <laughs> and there were two of those in the audience, all the way to, uh, to, to you know, the totally hip, uh, and, and all the way down to... Uh, just a great... Almost a cross-section of humanity was there. After all, when you have 3,000 people, you're going to have all kinds of people. But here is the thing that I'd like to say. And I'm also passing along the comment that was made by one of the directors over at uh, Carnegie Hall. They could not get over last year and this year two successive audiences. And this audience, incidentally, was larger this time by far than the last audience. Not one single dollar's worth of damage was done to Carnegie Hall in both of those shows. Now, may, that may not mean much to you, but today, vandalism has become almost the accepted rule in any big show. For some reason or other, people have an insane desire. You know, people who go to rock shows, people who do all this stuff, to cut up the seats, to write their names on the backs of the seats, uh, to uh, to do almost you you believe the stuff that they do in a beautiful hall like Carnegie Hall. In fact, it is it is a common thing in Carnegie Hall after some show that's been in many cases far less people than we had for them to have hundreds of dollars in damages, which of course uh, the producer has to pay for. It's in your contract that if uh, any damages that are, are are done by the people who arrive. You're responsible. And some of the stuff you wouldn't believe. People, for example, have come into the... And I can't understand this kind of, of real vandalism, where they'll come in and, and because it is Carnegie Hall, they'll literally steal uh, a seat. They'll, they'll, they'll rip up a cushion from a seat, take it home. <laughs> Just rip it right up. See, they have these beautiful red velvet seats in there. You have to see that, too. Joe, this is a lovely hall. And it's, it's, it's kept absolutely like a pin. The people are so proud of it who work there that this thing is kept like a jewel. And so when you come into Carnegie Hall in the afternoon, these people are polishing it. They, they, uh, the, the gilt, the big, uh, up around the big balconies up at the top, all the gilt rosettes and, and uh, the beautiful uh, brass balcony uh, railings that are around are all polished like the ship's uh, brass. And uh, when people come into a show and rip up the place, these guys, are they really get sick. But uh, there was not one dollar damage done to Carnegie Hall Saturday night, and, and Carnegie Hall couldn't believe it. it they could not believe it. <laughs> and, and, and so they wanted me to, to, uh, to come on publicly and say, that is a fantastic thing, and I'm, I'm passing it along for myself and for Lee and for everybody. Now, uh, to me, Carnegie Hall uh, is, is, is kind of like the epitome for a performer. You can perform in Las Vegas. You can perform in, in uh, Alice Tully Hall. and uh, You can perform in uh, the Felt Forum. But uh, there's only, to, for a performer, Carnegie Hall is to a performer what Madison Square Garden is to a fighter. Uh, to fight the main goal at Madison Square Garden for the title <laughs> is like uh, the ultimate uh, fighter experience. You know, it really is. It's the garden. Uh, to perform at Carnegie Hall is 
the ultimate experience, and especially to fill the hall. Of course, this is a, this is another great experience. Um, it, it, the only other parallel I could say would be in New York would be to perform at the Met. Uh, this is another great experience, obviously, for a performer. Now, the thing that I find out, uh, you know, after having performed uh, all over the country, that Carnegie Hall has a very special panache to it. When you say you were at Carnegie Hall, you, you're saying something. And, and it's to the credit of Carnegie Hall that this is so. This is, they don't book everybody. As a matter of fact, it's difficult to get a booking in the hall. They have to decide whether the show should be at Carnegie Hall. Do you know that, Joe? Uh, you don't just go down and I want to hire it for my birthday party. No way. And that's why it's maintained its, its uh, position in the world. Now, but what I found out was interesting. Who comes to Carnegie Hall just to look at? It was interesting to me. I hope it is to you. Who comes to Carnegie Hall just to see the hall? Tourists. What would you would you would you imagine? Well, my first impression would be well, it would be people like uh, say, maybe the English, or maybe the Germans who have a great musical tradition behind them, that they would come to, if they come to America, they would come to see Carnegie Hall. You'll never guess who it is. The Japanese. <laughs> the Japanese uh, come to see Carnegie Hall. By far the largest single number of tourists who want to just come in and see the hall are Japanese. Now, that was fascinating to me. And, and uh, in fact, Mr. McDonald told me, he says, you know what they do? He says, they come in and, they're, you know, they're so, they're so uh, in love with Carnegie Hall that they get special permission from the management to come in and take a photograph, take pictures of the, of the stage or the seats or, or pictures of the ceiling, which incidentally is fantastic. The ceiling in Carnegie Hall, that is to the absolute peak of, of the of way at the top, is almost nine stories. Straight up, you stand down at the bottom of that uh, auditorium and look up, you're looking up close to ten stories. It's a tremendous uh, hall. And it's, uh, there is no place in the hall that you cannot hear the merest nuance. Now, I, I know that on the stage, I could, I could literally whisper on stage uh, using, of course, uh, theatrical techniques. Uh, the, uh, that's another problem that, that most people don't appreciate that on a performer, that the use of your voice, the use of your instrument, what they call your instrument, especially doing a one-man show, uh, is of prime importance. It's like a piano. If you have a piano that doesn't carry, the sound doesn't carry, you're in trouble. Well, the, the instrument of the performer is important. That's why you notice that so many performers uh, have not had the, the proper kind of vocal training, and so you'll see them always walking around with a microphone stuck right into their nostrils, you know, yelling into it. And I was trying to Manny, and I want to tell you this. <laughs> These are guys that don't really know how to use their voice, but they have to shout into a mic. I never do this. I, I uh, am years of performing on various stages that were not even mic'd, incidentally, uh, have taught me a lot of things about vocal usage. So what we do is use a very light, uh, almost invisible, uh, small uh, microphone that is used only for the purpose of making sure that anybody who may be way up in the balcony uh, is, is, I wouldn't really need this at Carnegie Hall, but it's done to ensure that if there is a great crowd noise and great roaring, that it will somehow override this. But we don't use much amplification, really. Uh, 
but the hall has such great acoustics, just intrinsic acoustics, that you can you can drop a literally drop a safety pin on the stage there. I mean this very literally, actually. You can drop a safety pin on the stage, hold a safety pin uh, waist high, and drop it. And I want to tell you, the guy sitting in the ninth row of the outermost peanut gallery will hear that safety pin as clearly as a guy sitting down uh, in the orchestra dress seats right in the front row. Now, that's hard to believe, but it's true. And uh, what makes this kind of acoustics, uh, nobody really knows. I've had friends who, who are acoustical engineers, and, and uh, they've designed a hall with absolute mechanical, theoretical, computerized precision, uh, including even the cloth and the seats and the kind of cloth that's used in the, in the rugs and the paint on the walls and all that. So it gets the absolute perfect acoustics, and it never quite works. Now, Lincoln Center is an example. This is not necessarily a very good hall acoustically. It's better than it was in the beginning, but the, it's still not the best hall by far in America. It's a beautiful hall, but not the best hall acoustically, and that's, after all, the name of the game. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like having a ball team that has all beautiful uniforms, and they look so great. they got great muscles and all that, but they're in seventh place. And that ain't the name of the game. Uh, and so Carnegie Hall, has not only is it an aesthetically beautiful hall, just to look at this hall, it's just a beautiful hall. Uh, when you're inside that place, you just, uh, you know, it's just, just you, you feel the, the authority of this place. It's, it's real. But stepping out on that stage, now that's something else. And Carnegie Hall has one very interesting characteristic that I find almost unique to the great halls, the big halls that I've performed in, that if you're the right kind of performer and you, you, you know how to use that stage, I'm not going to say this is true for everybody performing there, but I'm talking about personally, my experience. If you're the right kind of performer, you know how to move on the stage, you know how to utilize that, that magnificent, uh, design, that magn beautifully designed stage, which is a big fan, deep stage out there. If you know how to use that, that hall becomes as intimate to the people sitting in there watching the show, their rapport with the performer, and their feeling. It becomes as intimate as the tiniest nightclub. Now, that's a rare thing for a big hall, where a guy sitting up on the balcony somewhere, way in the back, feels as if he's as much a part of the show as the guy sitting down in the front row. That is a fact of Carnegie Hall. Fascinating place. <laughs> and I might say it's a great monument. Uh, Any time anybody suggests uh, doing away with Carnegie Hall and putting up one of these big tinfoil office buildings there is going to have to personally fight Shepard. I mean physically. <laughs> I'll be out there rolling on the ground with him because it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And if we destroy that, we don't deserve the name of a cultured people. We simply don't. Uh, you know, it would be like uh, the, all the Italians getting to say, hey, you know, think of what we can do with this uh, fantastic real estate where the Vatican is. We can put it in a parking lot, and, you know, <laughs> or La Scala. Uh, it never occurred to them to do it, but it would occur to us, unfortunately. We did it to the Met, and uh, the the Wreckers ball is never far hidden, unfortunately. 
But uh, it was a great night. And uh, do you want to hear another little section of this? Uh, you got something to set up in there, Jim? Well, come on. I, t- I told Lee in there to... You can't. All right. All right. Uh, you only have two machines, so we can't do it. But uh, that's that was a great evening, uh, Saturday night, and I personally feel that uh, that uh, it was just a, a great night, and I, I hope that all you were, were there uh, dug it. Wait, wait, uh, Lee is on the phone. Just a minute here. Okay, she's going to say something. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I won't mention the name, but one of the things we had in the show was a prop that we went out, just for a little fun. We, we did this for just as a kind of a little little additional gag. You know, we're very interesting. A guy told me, uh, one of the one of the directors there who had been directing Broadway shows, you know, a lot of the guys at Carnegie have, have worked on Broadway shows and tra- travel around the world with Broadway uh, road companies. And, you know, these are all really experienced uh, show people. He says that, that, that he felt that the show that we did was a cross between Hamlet and Hell's a-poppin'. <laughs> he did. He says, I couldn't believe it. He says, it's a cross between Hamlet and Hell's a Pop. And he says, damn, this thing I ever saw. He says, on the one hand, it's extremely thought-provoking, this stuff you do. On the other hand, he says, it has this curious, wild, uh, totally slapstick comedy involved in it. And he says, it, it, it just, he, and he had traveled, by the way, and worked with both shows, <laughs> Hell's a Poppin' and Hamlet. So he says, he felt it was a combination of the two. And he's sitting out there, he says, you know, I never miss it. And he comes out, and he watched our rehearsal, which is quite a compliment. Uh, he said, I always like to watch you rehearse, he said, because uh, he's, because everybody who probably sees you thinks that this is not rehearsed or anything. He, just, he says, it's just great. He says, but that combination hit him. But to tell you what happened that night, uh, we had just as a little additional gag. We had, uh, Lee had gone out and rented uh, at one of the prop places in, in the city. She had rented this bear. Uh, it was a it was a prop bear. I mean, a real bear. This is not a fake bear. He was a real bear. It was a black bear, a big, full grown, black bear on a on a. He, you know, he was mounted. There he was. He was he was uh, t- stuffed, but looking mean. Oh, I'm telling you, he was a real bear. He was a mean looking bear, and and so the day before, it was delivered to Carnegie Hall by these people. See, they brought it in across here. They don't often get a stuffed bear delivered to Carnegie Hall, so the boys thought it was great, you know, all the guys at Carnegie Hall. So they took it in the back where they store props. See, they have a room in the back, backstage, where all their uh, props and stuff are stored. So they brought this bear back there. And this is a dark room. It's a it's a big, cavernous room, and they've got all kinds of things, like uh, helmets for singers who sing uh, Lohengrin and stuff like that back there, and swords that are used in the, you know, the Russian Bolshoi Ballet and stuff. So they got the bear in the back, and they, 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 somebody got an idea there. There's, there's one guy who's the butt of their gags, you know, one of the staff members, as we have here. Every place has one guy that people put the cigar butt in his, in his uh, coffee cup, you know, that kind of stuff. So they says, oh, boy, we're going to get him this time. <laughs> so they put this bear up at the head of the stairs in the dark, with this, with a giant rope around his neck, and 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 the rope trailed off into the darkness, and 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 sure enough, uh, this guy, in the course of his work, nobody said anything to him. He had no idea there was any kind of a bear in the office. And he came to work after his day off, and he had to go up into this place, 
And it was just a little dim light bulb up there. So he goes walking up the steps, and he throws the dim light bulb out. And there, standing right in front of him at the top of the stairs with a giant rope, is an enormous bear. This <laughs> is a guy off. Like, you know, it's like they were all afraid he's going to have a heart attack. Because right? one crowd says, don't do it. The other crowd says, do it, do it, do it. And it says he staggered back, and it says his face was the color of cream of wheat. His eyeballs were bugged. <laughs> and, and, and it was a great moment. And, and, and he reels down the stairs, and he comes he comes out on the stage, and he says, There's a big animal up there! Oh! You know, he got, and, and, and everyone says, Calm down, calm down. Uh, calm down. It's, uh, uh, Charlie's just bought himself a pet, and he's tied it up there. But uh, uh, this is the kind of stuff that goes on backstage at Carnegie Hall. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, how much time do we have here, little Lee? Uh, how much time do we have left? Seven minutes. All right. Uh, seven minutes. And since we only have one machine, I can't do much in the way of that. I, I can say, uh, I hope I've answered questions that people have uh, called in and, and uh, written about. Uh, I, we, we're not at, at liberty at this point because we don't know what date we'll have. We're not at liberty to mention at all or even uh, estimate when our next show will be in Carnegie Hall, but there will be another one. It'll be next year sometime. Uh, the date I'm not sure of. And already I'm beginning to work out material, and I'm thinking of what I'm going to do. And already uh, Lee is at work on the stage, and then the Stagger Wing Productions is uh, moving into action, <laughs> you know, to, to make it come to reality. I, I, I You know, I guess it, it never would occur to people what goes into... Uh, the mechanics and the finances of getting a show put together, ready for the presentation at Carnegie Hall. There's all kinds of things that are involved. For example, little things that people don't think about, like, say, printing the tickets. You, know, you just take that for granted. You go, you get a ticket. Well, <laughs> somebody had to go out and very carefully plan those. The tickets are designed, you know. They're not just, somebody designs the ticket. Uh, the tickets are designed and they're printed. Uh, Oh, of course. You take posters. You know that the, that the posters were designed uh, by a top designing company here in New York City that does very elegant poster designs. And uh, they, they, uh, that was done months ago, that the design was worked out. That's an original design, of course. And the, the printing uh, and the design, the putting together of a poster takes months. Just little things that people just see this thing up. Now, you can get a cheap little white poster with a, a Saturday night uh, uh, so-and-so. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a real, genuine, beautiful collector's item poster, which is what this one is. Uh, that takes time. Booking the hall, the hall itself has to be booked at least a year in advance uh, for all these things to work out together. And that involves financing that. They don't just say, well, yeah, you can have it. So there's a, that has to be all financed. Uh, that has to be arranged. Uh, it, uh, then, then props. What if I had designed an entire uh, sequence of things that I wanted to do weeks in advance and the props weren't available? So all the props have to be worked out. Uh, the set has to be designed. Anyway, to put it down into to black and white terms, there was about uh, four to six months of concentrated work that went into that one three hours that came together on uh, Saturday night at Carnegie Hall. And uh, it was well worth it. Uh, just a, a tremendously uh, exciting and well worth it. You know, uh, 
uh, there are other things uh, that uh, that could be talked about. And let's just take things like the advertising. All the, people have to design the ads that go into the Times. Uh, we had, you know, there were ads for this thing in the Times because a lot of people find out about shows, and incidentally, that's where most of the people who lived in places like uh, Lexington, Kentucky, or Louisville, or or uh, Oklahoma found out about it through so the Sunday Times. That's where they find out. So those ads have to be placed. They have to be designed. They have to be written. They have to be paid for, and <laughs> that ain't easy either. Uh, if you've ever tried to buy a good size ad in the Times, you know. Uh, the other uh, publications, like the Village Voice, uh, these are all ads have to be placed and designed separately for the Voice. And uh, so it's it's really a complex thing. And anybody who who is interested in production and learning how to produce, uh, all these things they have to learn. <laughs> they have to, you know, even David Merrick had to go through that. Uh, David, I can just, you know, you, you somehow think of the producer as an Olympian character, but he's the one who's on the phone. I don't care whether he's producing uh, the reappearance of God at the Lundfontein Theater. He's on the phone somewhere along the line saying, Now look! I don't want them rotten-looking green tickets again this year. What do you mean that's all you got? Well, I'm going to go to another place. We're going to have yellow tickets. I want yellow. All right. <laughs> you would never think of, of, uh, of a guy arguing about little trivial things. But this has, it has to be done. Nobody's going to do it. It's a producer. Uh, he's the one that says, What kind of a cockamamie owl did you give us last year? That little owl, nobody... I, my my mother-in-law couldn't see it from the front seat. We want an owl. Well, I don't care if you've got a right to France to get it. Get it. Oh, no. What do you mean? A blue owl. This does. We want an owl-colored owl. All right. So this is the kind of stuff that they do. <laughs> I want to try. And that's what Lee was doing for months back. Yeah, tears. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of crying. Uh, yes, I, I have seen Lee in absolute tears as after an afternoon arguing with the ticket guys or arguing with the guys that, that are going to do the ad for this place, or arguing with the guy that's going to going to fix the chair, uh, arguing with the guy that's going to get the gels. That's another little thing for lights. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it, it scares me. So it was a great evening. And, uh, and uh, you know, for those of you who were not there, I hope that this uh, show hasn't particularly bored you, but uh, I thought maybe you might be interested in some of the background scenes that go on in doing a show at Carnegie Hall. Incidentally, there's other little things like, for example, uh, it's part of the Carnegie Hall uh, procedure that tickets go on sale one month before the show, exactly one month, 30 days at the Carnegie Hall box office. Well, uh, since this is so, that means the show has to be completed and done and ready to go on stage well before that time. So there's all kinds of time elements that go into this uh, this uh, this constant uh, struggle to do a show there. But it was a great evening, and I want to thank all of you who came, and I hope that all of you who did come felt that it was an evening well spent. At least, uh, uh, well, I, I, from what the, the reactions have been, I know that you feel this way. Uh, also, I'd like to say that I, I, uh, I'm going to do far more personal appearance work this coming year than I have in the past, because I feel like it, I enjoy it, uh, I think that uh, this is where the future of any good performer lies, being out there where the people are, 
and uh, this is what I intend to do. And uh, I hope that a few of you will come, uh, you know, and occasionally see what kind of things we're doing. But, uh, oh, God, what a moment when you walk out on that stage. And you see that great house looming up around you. For those of you who have often wondered about this, a, a performer on the stage cannot see the audience. You can feel the audience. Uh, you get just a few faces in the front row, and they're, they're blurred because of the lights. But when you're out there under those heavy lights and the, the spots are beaming down on you, you don't see the audience. Now, a lot of people have an idea that you're looking right at them when you're doing something, but I don't see the audience out there. Uh, it's just a great black, resounding, uh, roaring hole out there. And uh, you feel them. You, you feel the presence. It's like, it's like if, you, if, a, if a caveman were to crawl into a cave that was being occupied by a saber-toothed tiger. He'd feel it. <laughs> and the analogy is good. Because an audience is, 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 is only as good as what's going on on the stage. There's no such thing as bad audience or good audience. There's either a good show or a bad show. So I don't, I don't take that cop out. Uh, but walking out on the stage and feeding that great uh, magnetic thing that goes on between a performer and an audience, this is something you cannot get in any other medium. You cannot get it on TV. You certainly don't get it in the movies. You do not get it uh, on uh, even many stage shows, actually, where you're protected by the production yourself. It's that strange rapport that is so uh, exciting and so so uh, so inexplicable. It's difficult to explain it. But what a night! Saturday night at Carnegie Hall. I want to thank all of you for this fantastic evening.